this week on Trip Weddings, The Price is Right. Advice on how to package and price your services. We'll take a deep dive into how to price your services to sustain and grow your photography business. Plus, we answer a listener question about deciding where to take the formal photographs on the wedding day and our picks of the week. All this and more on Twip Weddings. Well, welcome back to another episode of Twip Weddings. I'm Bruce Clark, and joining me again today are Mr. Brian Capricci and Mr. Robert Evans. Gentlemen, welcome Good back. Good afternoon. Hello. How's things? Robert, you look a little f- chilly today. <laughs> He's in yeah. his fridge. I think I'm doing an underground shoot in the Arctic, so <laughs> I'm uh, dressed all nice and warm today, and you know, it's winter. I like getting cozy. Nice. nice. You're, you can tell us. You're working secretly on, a, on the next Star Wars, and they're going back to Hoth, and you're recording, aren't you? Exactly. It's actually a black op, hence the background. There you go. <laughs> And Brian, how's things over in your end of the world? Oh, things are cold. Not as cold as Robert is, apparently, but uh, we're still, we've got snow outside, and it was my first day to shovel today, so it was uh, kind of exciting and fun, because I live in Canada, and I like it, so I'm good with that. Awesome. Yeah. Good stuff. Nice. Is it snowy there where you are, Bruce? It is cold and snowy. It's, uh, yeah, it's pretty chilly today. We've had a little bit of snow over, over Christmas and the New Year's holiday. And, uh, I was, we were talking a bit off air before we came on that, uh, I had a, a wedding, few weddings over the Christmas season. And we had one, I was, uh, second shooting with a friend of mine and it was minus 32 outside with the wind chill. But the bride was, she was like, I want winter photos. I planned a winter wedding and we're going to go outside and shoot. So it was, uh, she was a trooper and went out and, uh, and shot in the cold. So. Nice. And what did you, were you happy with what you got? Yeah, it was really good. Yeah, it was a really pretty day. That's the, the one nice thing about winter weddings is that, you know, you, you get those shots that are really different from a lot of other wedding photography that you see. And we were lucky in that we got a lot of snow right beforehand. So oh, all yeah. the trees were covered in that nice fresh snow. And yeah, so it made it really pretty. It's always when you get a winter wedding and it's like warms up and it's like kind of <laughs> and brown and everything's kind of icky it's like it's, it's not as it's not as fun so we've been lucky right. this year we've had a couple of winter weddings where it snowed literally like either the day before or on the day of the wedding and it just blanketed everything in this nice pretty white snow so it was, makes for a really nice pretty pretty kind of romantic uh, scene for a winter wedding so so yeah so now it's kind of uh, quieting down the wedding front for a little bit and so now it's just getting into working you know working on the business which we talked about in another uh, previous episode so just busy doing doing that working on the business once i get my computer back so. <laughs> 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 Had a little computer troubles over the holidays but awesome well let's uh, let's jump into another episode and uh we'll start out with our usual uh segment of uh pick of the week and each uh, each episode we're going to choose a photography related item that we think would benefit other photographers and your pick can be anything as long as it's photography related so who's ready with their pick i'm going to throw it over to brian brian looks ready with a, with a pick. i got it i'm always ready um, I can't remember if I've talked about this or not on the show. I don't think that I have, but this is the new Fuji X100T and it just came out not too long ago. Um, I got it and I've, you know, I used it over the holidays. Basically it's a, it's a Fuji mirrorless camera, but the quality out of this is amazing. It's got an APS-C sensor, but it's like, you know, the Fuji X100 is the first one that came out that everyone fell in love with because it's a rangefinder style body. And the Fuji X100S and then the T, this is the one that's sort of the third generation of it. And they fixed so much of what people had issues with in the first couple generations. And this is like a, 
a powerhouse camera now. It's it's amazing for like I use this personally. Like I this is like my go to point and shoot camera for like around the house on over the holidays those kinds of things. But I use this thing professionally as well. So I'm shooting about eighty percent of my work now with my Fuji stuff, and this camera comes with me to all my <laughs> weddings, with all my portrait sessions, and everything. So How it's. Much uh, is that? It's about a thousand bucks, I think, or just over a thousand bucks. Um, it's a fixed lens, so it's got a twenty-three millimeter lens built right into it. F two. It's got a neutral density filter built right into it as well. Um, but you know, just the the image quality, the the JPEG processing is actually incredible in camera for the Fuji cameras, and so um, I'm just like jazzed about this camera. It's amazing. So it's my pick of the week. Nice, nice. I had a I had a Fuji X100, the fir- very first one yep. that came out. And I had it for a while, and it was, again, just like you, it was my go-to kind of point-and-shoot yeah. background camera. But I found a lot of times I was, it was getting left behind on the shelf, unfortunately. I was, you know, if I went somewhere, I was like, eh, I, I didn't want to carry anything, so I would just pull out my iPhone. So yeah. I, I was finding it wasn't getting the love that it deserved, so I ended up selling <laughs> it um, just because I wanted it to go to a good home. And, you know, yeah. I, it, I felt it, like it was a neglected puppy that wasn't getting <laughs> enough playtime, so I needed it to go to a good home. So yeah. but, uh, I've heard really good things about the, about the latest ones. So. Yeah, it's great. Yeah. Nice. Mr. Evans, what's your pick this week? Well, my pick of the week um, can be photography or it can be anything. Um, most people have probably seen an advertisement for this because they advertised the poop out of it for a year before they actually came out. But um, for those of you watching, these are these tile um, finders. Um, and basically what it is, is like, it's a GPS, uh, a little bit GPS tile finder that works kind of in conjunction with your iPhone or whatever phone you use. Um, but it's to find things. So, um, I basically, I got a few of them. You can get one, you can get four or five, but you put them on, there's an app on the phone, you put the tile on the phone, it recognizes it. And then I keep them again, those of the year looking for the two that I have now in my camera bag. Oh. Um, so should my camera bag maybe disappear at a wedding, which uh, in California that has happened a lot. It hasn't, I haven't heard stories like that recently, but um, you know, like you're going to notice right away. And as long as it's within range um, and it also, so they say like, even if it goes on, it like works off of other people that have tile. And eventually once everybody's on it, each phone kind of like tracks other ones. So you can literally find it. But I've heard stories at jobs when uh, like sometimes it was just staff and they'd grab the bag and then stash it somewhere behind the scenes in the back of the house. And then, um, but nobody knows, you know, where it went to. Um, but it can be used for other purposes besides just your cameras. Of course, they like, they talk about, we can put them on your keys, anything that you can lose. Um, so they like show like, you know, like one example of the teenagers in the house with the keys and the, you know, it's in the laundry basket and one kid that shares a car is looking for the keys. And so it's, it's a really kind of neat little device. It's not that expensive. It depends on how many of them you get. Um, but I think it's a cool little gadget. Hopefully, I'll never have to use it for the purpose that I got it for. But if I do, <laughs> then uh, I'm set. That's cool. How does it? So does it uh, emit some sort of an audible signal or something like that? Yeah, you can do that as well. Uh, otherwise, just like your maps, it'll show you a GPS point, like where it is. Okay. So, like for your keys, if you're losing it, you know, it'll say that's where you probably use the audible. You don't know where it is. You see on the GPS that yes, it's there in your house, but yeah. where are they? Um, it works to very similar as like find my iPhone, except find my iPhone, you know, has a broader range and that, I, but I used that one time I could not find my phone and it's basically slipped down into the couch and I did the audible signal and I found it. I mean, it was deep in the, you know, I never would have known that it was there. 
and that saved me. Um, so it's very similar. So it has a map, um, and it has, uh, the audible signal and it, I apparently like, they don't need batteries. It just, you know, probably only uses the battery once you send an audible signal to it. So. Very cool. But it has to be kind of in the vicinity though, right? Like if somebody well, stole it, your it camera says, bag and took off like with it to the next right, city, I mean, you wouldn't be able to tell. Yeah. It says that, um, it works off other people's phones that have tiles. So like it kind of pings off everyone who have it. So if you got lucky, you could try to find it. I was also even wondering if there was a way that, you know, maybe tile or, you know, the, the higher authorities could maybe find it, mm-hmm. you know, so I kind of hide it in my bag so that it's not, you know, like no one's going to look for that, yeah. but, um, you know, so it's not the first thing that they, you know, look for that, that hopefully I have a chance of getting it back. That's you know, good. Finding it. It'd be good when you're traveling, then you could, you could probably get to know whether your bag made it onto the plane or not. That's true. That's a very <laughs> you, good, you know, it's a good point. Yeah. Even if it's just your luggage, you throw it in your luggage and you want to know that, you know, that's with you. you yeah. Know, you can just sit on your phone before you take off and go, yeah, my bag's on the plane or. That's cool. Or watch it get far away as you yeah, as you, get, as you pull away. Yeah. <laughs> awesome. Good pick. Good pick, Robert. So, so what do those go for then? Uh, just I'd have to look the price. I got the I got the little kit that had like how many did I get? Hold on, it's right here. I got is it is it like a hundred bucks each or is it like five bucks each? Or it's somewhere probably in like you can get like two or three of them for I think you know under a hundred bucks. That's cool. So my pick is also a little accessory for your iPhone Um, or I think it works with I think it works with Android now as well but this was originally a little Kickstarter project and it's called the iBlazer Uh and it's a little LED um, flash for Hmm. your iPhone and it actually is pretty bright Um, there it's rechargeable and it plugs into the hot shoe of your of your phone so you can have a little video light on your phone but what I find this is actually really really good for is it's awesome for shooting ring shots mm. so it's a little portable led it's like literally it's no bigger than a than a half an inch so it's a tiny little thing i can throw it in my in my camera bag and it makes a great little video light for doing like ring shots so we bring that along with us um to weddings it battery lasts for a couple hours so you do have to charge it um fairly regularly because i find it doesn't last that long but it has a few different levels of uh, brightness so you can dim it and then it comes with a, a little um rubber uh, sort of softbox you can put on it to diffuse the light a little bit, but it's actually really, really bright. Uh, so it was originally a Kickstarter project, and then now it's, you know, they got the funding and, and, and went to town, and so you can get them at iBlazer.com. Um, it's Blazer without, it's the cool way of spelling Blazer, B-L-A-Z-R. No, no <laughs> E in there, so iBlazer.com. Um, yeah, and you can get them in, I think they're about 30 bucks. Somewhere in there. So they're a really nice little portable LED flash that you can just throw in your bag. And if you need that quick little hit of light for, for some uh, ring shots or whatnot, some detail shots, it actually works pretty good. So that's cool. Take a lot. So, so nice. sorry, just for clarification, it's like a continuous light source, right? Not a flash yeah. light source? Okay, cool. Yeah, it's continuous. But oh, you can cool. actually put it on your iPhone and it will, um, and there's, they have an app and you can, I haven't really used that. I just use it more as a ring light, yeah. uh, but you can put it on your, on your phone mm. and use it as a more powerful flash and they have their own app. So if you take photos with their, um, iBlazer phone app, um, camera app, then it will trigger the, it, and work as a flash on your, so if you need Very a little cool. more powerful, um, flash on your, on your smartphone. So yeah, so it's a pretty cool little device called the iBlazer. That's very cool. 
I, I could nice. see it being useful for like I know f- for us when we do um, like uh, rings definitely, but also for like wedding reception details, the table shots and like the stationery and all that. What we do is we actually have the Westcott ice light, and we like very strategically like I have my assistant hold that, and uh, that way I can get some really nice, clean, uh, good temperature light on the detail that I'm actually shooting on, and everything else kind of fades into this nice warm background. That mm-hmm. would be perfect for that because you could just kind of put it in there just to kind of highlight a, a place card or a menu or whatever it is or the the, the centerpiece, and then everything else could kind of go into that nice darker warmness to it. So that's that's really cool. I could see that being useful. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's really nice. And like I say, it's literally like less than half an inch, so it's yeah. really tiny. So yeah. you just throw it in your bag and away you go. I might have to put a square tile on it, though, so I don't <laughs> so I can find <laughs> so it. You don't lose it because it's so small. But um, <laughs> So, yeah. So, and it just, again, it just charges up. Uh, there's a built-in battery, so you just, you know, you just plug it in. It's just rechargeable, so it doesn't take any batteries or anything like that. So Very cool. So you just have to remember to charge it before you go to the wedding. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but then it's not very useful, so. Very cool. Nice. Yeah. So that's the item. All right, so speaking of that, I found the pricing oh, good. for the tile. Um, and for those of you nerds that care, it's secured with 128-bit encryption, Ooh. whatever that means. Uh, so one tile is $25, a four-pack is $70, an eight-pack is $130, and a 12-pack is $180. Oh, that's not bad. There, there's no shipping fee. And like I said, then you download the app. Um, it works with the app. And you know that's how that's pretty simple. Very it's cool. cool little project. Check those out. Awesome, great picks. And once again, we'll have links to all those uh, picks over on the show notes for this episode. So be sure to visit the website and uh, check it out. All right, on to our next segment, which is our listener question. Um, each week, we're going to choose a listener question to answer on the show. And this week's question is from Donna. Donna asks. Who decides on the location or locations where you'll do the formal photographs? Do you choose choose the location for the bride and groom, or do you leave that decision up to them? Hmm. Robert, why don't you take this one? Well, I would say ninety percent of the time I'm going to be the one choosing that. Um, <clears throat> other than you know, of course, we talked about communication in past episodes. Uh, you know, if my bride has a specific request, I'd love my formals in front of this or on the beach or whatever it is. Then I'm going to try to accommodate that for her. But otherwise, I'm choosing the location. You know, if I haven't got, if I haven't worked at a location, particularly for me, it's exciting. I'd rather work at a location that I haven't worked at before. Uh, but I'd get there about uh, half an hour or so early, just kind of scout what I was thinking, where I was going to do certain things, um, what makes the most sense. Uh, you know, that might change during the day if lighting changes. You know, I might pick one place and then lighting changes. But uh, ultimately, for me, um, I'm looking for background and lighting and. Uh, probably lighting being more important than the background. Um, but, you know, because it is what it is, but I just need to get it done. And again, my simple thought with formals is they need to be lit well and in focus. There's not a ton of creativity other than some of the posing that you can do with them. Um, but ultimately, I think that's all the client cares about is they want to see their family and friends in those pictures. Mm-hmm. So how do you handle the, the requests where they, they're, they're insisting on a very specific spot? They say, oh, you know, we love this spot. We think it'll be great. They really want it. But you know that, you know, at 2 o'clock in the afternoon that it's just going to be horrible lighting or it's going to be – or it's, maybe it's a really distracting background. There's cars in the background, like the things that they wouldn't think about that we would think right. about. How do you – how do you? Uh, I explain it to just them. Just explain it to them? That's a very good like, you know, like, oh, we want the sunset. We want the beautiful sunset. And you're like, yeah, but the but the light here is, you know, four stops different than the light out there. 
And I can, you know, I can pop a flash in there and make it look like that, but it's going to look really flashed or like you mentioned, if there's a car or something distracting, I just talk to them and say, okay, I'm, I'm willing to do it this way, but this would not be my choice as the expert. You don't have to say as the expert, but this would be not my choice because of the cars that are driving by, the people that are walking by, the, you know, the lighting is much more pretty right here and it's, it's simple and otherwise I have to use this harsh flash and, you know, it's one thing to use, as you guys know, shooting sunsets, you know, it's kind of a very bright light that you're going to have to do to match the background as opposed to maybe a fill light in the shade that's a more gentle, softer, prettier light. Brian, how about you? How do you handle? Yeah, I, I would. I'd echo the same thing that Robert said. Um, I, I think a big part that we have to remember, and a lot of photographers, you know, become victim to just sort of being being button pushers when this kind of thing comes up. But you know, our, our clients are hiring us as the professionals, and we have to be the professionals. I mean, we do this every weekend, right? Or even if you haven't done this every weekend, even if you're shooting your first wedding, you have more experience, photographically speaking, than your clients would, and they've hired you for your expertise. And so I'm a big believer that we have to sort of exercise that and practice that and, and be a consultant, be be the professional. And you know, if, if we have a spot that we think is better, I think that we should voice that. I think I think it's important for us to also be confident in that. Um, I've, I've seen photographers, you know, when they're shooting on location, they're kind of like, it's almost like they're they're asking in a really like uh, kind of mousy way about it, where it's like, can we maybe kind of shoot over here? And I don't think that that really kind of uh, communicates the kind of confidence that you're a professional and you know what you're doing. And so I think you know if, if you want to have that kind of perception, it's important for you know you to be able to be confident and and actually be able to talk about that. So that'd be my suggestion. The other funny thing is, I mean, you know, you, you see it all the time. I'm sure you guys have, have seen it too. But if you're, if you go to a golf course, for example, we had a lot of golf courses here in Niagara and a lot of the time that, you know, they'll, they'll say, Oh, we've got a golf cart ready for you and the family. We can go to the ninth hole. We've got this beautiful gardens and the flowers and the, this and the, that. And you're like, okay, that sounds nice. I need to go see it ahead of time because most of the time it's like bright sun that time of the day, or it's like, you know, again, a pretty flower garden does not mean a good location for photos because you probably won't even see the flowers in the photos. <laughs> so yeah. I, I think it's, it's our job and our role to be the professional, be the consultant <laughs> and take control of that with confidence and, you know, be able to, to get the best images we can for our clients. Yeah. I've seen, you know, I, I belong in a whole bunch of different Facebook groups and, and things. And I see a lot of posts on there, particularly from newer photographers that are just starting out and they, you know, they'll post up example images of, how can I fix this now in Photoshop? The family, you know, insisted on doing photos, you know, and they're in this like horrible dappled light. And, you know, half the family is out in the sunlight and the other half is in the shade. And they're, you know, they're wondering, now, how do you fix this? Well, my, my answer would be you fix it by taking control of that situation at the mm-hmm. beginning right? Exactly. and looking for the good light and not putting them in that, you know, putting them at it, in that in the first place and you wouldn't have to worry about it. But I think a lot of newer photographers are, you say maybe a little bit timid or, or, or just don't have the experience to sort of take control of those situations and, mm-hmm. and, you know, as the expert and say, look, this is, you know, this is the reason why we want to, you know, we're going to shoot over here instead of over here, even though if, you know, they mean well, it might be a family member or, you know, and, and that, oh, it'll look pretty over here in front of the, you know, the such and such, but the lighting might be just, you know, God awful. Right. So that's where you have to sort of take control mm-hmm. of that situation and explain like, you know, it's a very pretty spot. Yes. But from a photographic you know, uh, standpoint, the lighting is not very good over there. We're going to put you over here where the lighting is going to be a lot more flattering, and a lot more, you know, a lot more pleasing for everybody. So 
Mm-hmm. But yeah. that's a common thing that I see in a lot of uh, beginner groups, uh, people struggling with that. And it's kind of after the fact they're trying to fix these these issues. I've even had like the same situation. Like I've had, I can think of one most recently about a year or so ago, I did a wedding and there was a guy there that was a photographer. <laughs> and um, he actually was a, he's a big YouTube guy. Um, he has, I don't even remember his name and I'm not going to throw him under the bus. But um he has he has a big YouTube following and he and he shoots all this stuff and we were at the beach and he's like well why don't you put the beach in the background and like and and the lighting was terrible and I was like putting their backs to the you know in the shade and and I was doing it and I was like no and and then he was undermining me and going to the to the bride and groom and saying you should have the beach in the background or whatever and I had to stand my ground I was like no you you hired me. You know, like, I know he's, he was a cousin or something. I know he's your family or whatever, but I'm the photographer. He doesn't shoot weddings. I do. He shoots YouTube videos. I mean, and I stood up for myself and I'm like, no way. So I think it's really important. You know, you have to do that. You have to really like do, you know, listen to your gut really. And if you know better then do what's right. Yeah, yep. Absolutely. Excellent. Good feedback there for Donna. So if you have a question, uh, we want to hear from you. So you can head on over to thisweekinphoto.com and leave your questions and your comments on the blog post for this episode. Or if you want, you can also send us a question by emailing us at twipwed at thisweekinphoto.com or just send out a tweet. Uh, Use the hashtag twipwed and we'll keep our eye out for those as well. And your question may be the next one we answer on the show. So... So today we're going to move into our into our main discussion, and uh, we wanted to do a little bit of a deeper dive in talking about how to price and package your services. We briefly touched on on pricing a little bit in some previous episodes, but we wanted to take this episode to really do a bit of a deep dive and really get into talking about how to price and package your wedding photography. And there are probably a million different ways of pricing and selling products and and a service like photography. And I think, uh, you know, the range is, you know, whether you've been just you know getting into the business or whether you've been shooting for years and years and years, I think pricing is one of those things that as photographers, we always struggle a little bit with, um, you know, most photographers get into photography because they love photography. They love the creative side of photography. Generally, unless your name is Brian Capricci, you're not as jazzed <laughs> about the business side of photography. But if you're going to be uh, if you're going to be successful as a photographer and be able to you know pay your bills and and earn a decent living, you need to also be successful on the business side of photography. And pricing plays a huge role in how successful you're going to be as a photographer. So today we really want to take a deep dive and, and get into into the pricing question. How do you go about pricing your products and your and your services? Because it is one of those areas that you know you, you could talk to a dozen people and get a dozen different answers on on how to do it. So want to sort of use use this forum and our panel here and our assembled group of experts today to talk about you know how do you decide on how to price not only your products because I mean there's I think there's a certain formula that can be applied to pricing uh, products like a print for example as opposed to pricing sort of the, the less tangible items like a service. How do you price a service versus a product that has, you know, costs and things like that? So I'm gonna let's start with Brian, because I know Brian, you you love talking about this stuff. You're you live and breathe this stuff every day over at <laughs> SproutingPhotographer.com. What where would you where would you start with pricing your services and your and your products if you're a wedding photographer? 
So first of all, when I saw this on the show notes for the episode, I was like, I did like a little happy dance over here in my studio because, <laughs> yeah, I mean, this is, it's a huge topic, right? I mean, it's, it's a, a topic that every photographer at some point, you know, earlier on rather than later, you have to deal with this kind of stuff. Like you have to get some kind of grasp on how you put dollars to what it is that you do, because if you're not charging for what you do, it's just a hobby. <laughs> so if you want to actually make a living at photography and, and even further than that, if you want to make a sustainable living as a photographer and actually be able to make this a career, you have to be able to be strategic about how you price yourself and profit is not a dirty word. Um, that's how we make a living at what we do. So, you know, it, it's actually really interesting because Bruce, you said, um, if you were to ask 12 different photographers about how to price, you'd probably get 12 different answers. And I agree with that. I think a lot of photographers oftentimes kind of attack the pricing discussion and the idea of how they price their own photography really kind of like just up in the air. It's kind of fluffy. It's kind of never really a concrete way of doing it. And so when I teach pricing, because I teach pricing a lot, that's the sort of my main area of expertise in the business realm. Um, I encourage photographers to consider uh, how how is pricing done outside of the photography industry? Because I really do think that if you want success, the best way to do that is to look at other successes. And I think a lot of the times we get stuck on our own echo chamber as photographers and we often forget that we're not the only ones that run a small business. We're not the only ones that run a one-man show, a two-man show. And so if you were to look outside of our industry, um, there's some some mechanics and some formulas and some calculations and some methods for pricing um, that are that are global for entrepreneurs that are just like good, solid pricing business mechanics for how to be profitable in a small business. And so that's yeah. – sorry? So I was going to stop you there. You've got a really great article on, and, and I think this might be a good example, is, is we take take the example of uh, a pricing an 8x10 mm. print. You've got a really a good article um, that's uh, over on your website called How to Set Your Prices as a, as a Professional Photographer, and you yeah. go through a really great example on how you price an 8, just a simple 8x10, but you yeah. could extrapolate this and apply it to any totally product yeah. that, you, that you serve. So let's, let's start with product yeah. and pricing a product. And Robert, I'm, I'm interested to get your thoughts on this as well. But um, take us through kind of if you were going to price a simple 8 by 10 what are the components that go into determining the final price of an 8 by 10 Because I could go down to Walmart or Costco or Walgreens, and I see that the price on their wall for an 8 by 10 is, let's just say, $3. Mm-hmm. So if I come to, to a client and say the price for an 8 by 10 is $85, where is that difference from buying the 8x10 from you versus going to Costco or Walmart and getting it for the $3? And what goes into making up that final price of that 8x10? Right. So so in my dollar? mind, this is sort of broken up into two conversations. One is like the psychology of how you actually present your prices and how you actually build up the value for your product. Because whether or not a product is, is perceived as being expensive or not is really a, it's a subjective topic, right? I mean, the, the whole idea of how we decide whether something is expensive or not is does the value exceed the price or does the price exceed the value? And if it's the former, then it's a good price. And if it's the latter, then it's expensive. So I think that that is like one sort of side of the conversation. And the other side is like how you actually come up with that price. Um, 
So if we look at how we actually go and break down the price, before I actually get into the, the calculation, just really quickly I want to touch on a lot of photographers use methods that are kind of subjective. If you look at something like, well, I'm going to charge based on quality, or I'm going to charge based on what my competition charges, or I'm going to charge based on uh, whatever I think feels right. Like That's not really a good way to get yourself set up to be um, – sustainable and to be able to have consistent pricing across the road. So I always suggest to photographers to start their prices with a cost of goods model. So basically looking at what goes into a product, know what your costs are going into it, set your price based on that, and then you can fudge the number up or down depending on the other factors that could influence it. So looking at that, um, there's sort of two things really. For any product, for any service, you're looking at what is the material cost of a product and what is the labor cost of a product. And this is the first mistake that a lot of photographers make is they don't actually consider what their time is to go in to make a product. Uh, and you really have to consider that because if you don't factor in your time to make a product, how are you ever going to get paid? <laughs> how are you ever going to make money in your business? Yeah, uh, or if absolutely. you had to take yourself out of it, how would you pay somebody else to do it? Or if you had an employee, how would you pay them to do it? And so you have to factor in both the material cost and the labor cost. So I'm if gonna- you're... Sorry? You, you've got a, you've got a studio assistant, and yep. Robert, do you have somebody that looks after like print ordering and doing all that kind of the behind the scenes stuff, or do you handle <laughs> a lot of that yourself? I have I do have someone that kind of does it on a part time. Like I outsource a fair amount of stuff. Yep. Um, I put as far as my print sales and stuff like that stuff goes on Pictage. So most of my online print sales are from you know going off something I don't have to even stick my hands in. Yep. Um, I charge a lot more money to shoot a wedding. And so generally, uh, I mean, the product that I sell the most, of course, are albums. Um, and I spend a lot of time and effort there uh, because I believe that everybody needs an album and should have one and not just shoot the wedding and give them a disc and let everybody fend for themselves. And uh, I know we kind of touched about a little bit on that last. Um, so it's interesting, you know, even you starting off the conversation with an 8x10, because I believe there's a, probably more than not these days a ton of photographers out there that like, don't want to sell product because they don't want to deal with it. They're scared of it. Albums, you know, whatever. It's easier for them to say like, I'll just go shoot your wedding and give you the files and you deal with it. And, um, you know, I think you're doing a, your clients a disservice. You're doing your brand a disservice. Um, you really need to always put your best foot forward and, um, you know, put something out there. So if anything, you know, I think like for me, it's like, then my clients should have, um, an album and like we don't have to get off into albums. We'll go back, but I like it. Even I do have a base package. If somebody doesn't want my package that includes, you know, a hundred image book, um, I have, you know, my base package, but I, in that I give them like a 25, 30 image album that I design and that I, they have no say in it, but I want them to have a product. So it's not just shoot and burn, you know, so to speak, I shoot and I design a book and I hand, you know, it's a very nice album. It costs me a fair amount of money, but I want them walking around with a little sales tool for me of my vision so that they can, you know, tell their friends. So even if I'm hitting that lower end, not where I want to be type of market, it's a small wedding or whatever, then I'm doing that. But um, as far as, you know, pricing goes, like one of the things in, I think Brian's going to talk about it more from a business side of it, which he's already started. And I like kind of with the thing too, is like, I like to say, don't put your dollars in front of your sense and your, your common sense of, you know, again, a lot of new photographers start up, start out and Brian started and like, they want to like 
well, that guy's charging that much money. So I should charge that much money. But I think, again, if you're going to do your clients a service, you need to evaluate your own skill level and don't um, let the client think that you're better than you are based on your prices if you're not going to deliver that level and quality. You know, work your way towards that, I think, is probably the most, you know, I mean, nothing great happens overnight. And when I started my business, uh, I mean, I've been doing it a long time, but I started my own business in January of 94. And I think my least expensive package then was probably $850, $850. You know, that was for like a seven, eight hour wedding and a 50 image album. Um, and I based my prices on then, like I had worked for three studios prior to opening my own business. And so I had, you know, shot a fair amount of weddings and thought I was, um, you know, at least equal to a lot of my competition, but I did price myself a little bit below my competition and the thinking that, you know, I could get some jobs cause I might be a little bit cheaper. And then I steadily raised my prices every year consistently based on, um, some on demand. And but just I kind of like generally roughly it was about a thousand dollars a year I would raise my packages you know as I got going um, I did not jump my prices up uh, when I did a bunch of huge you know some of the celebrity weddings that I've done um, because realistically that you know I would have priced myself out of the market as it is that I think I've mentioned on this show before that people assume because you've done some of the work that you know that I've done that I should be $35,000 or that's what I cost. So people don't even call me. Um, so it's a double-edged sword, you know, so I have to still compete, um, you know, in the, you know, quote unquote normal everyday world. But um, I think it's just, you know, having common sense on how you set your pricing and, and, you know, steadily growing, I think is the best success, you know? So that's kind of just my basic insight to pricing. And we can talk about, how we do our own pricing or whatever, but yeah. Yeah. So Brian, I want to, I want to circle back. So what I, the, what I was trying to um, get at the price, that labor factor, mm-hmm. right. And you know, you've got a studio assistant right now. Yeah. I, I assume your studio assistant, are they handling a lot of those print orders and those print sales? Not, not really. Uh, a lot of it is still me. Um, okay. Yeah. She, she's more support, admin, correspondence, scheduling, that kind of stuff. That kind of stuff. Yeah. So when you're factoring in, so you've got your, say you're trying to sell an eight by 10. So you've got your cost of the eight by 10, which is what you pay the lab or, you know, or if you're printing it yourself, the cost of your ink and your printer and your, you know, your paper, but that's your, your sort of your hard cost on the print itself. Mm-hmm. But there's all that labor cost that goes in the, that I think a lot of photographers, particularly if you're, uh, you know, one man or one woman show, you forget about that labor component of what it takes to actually produce that print. And again, on that article, you gave a really good breakdown of here's the time involved to produce an eight by 10. You've got the, you know, the email correspondence with the client. Then you've got the, the time it takes to place the order with, you know, with the lab. Then you've got the time it takes to either, you know, if they're going to ship it, you've got shipping costs or let's say you you drive down, you know, I, I use a local lab here, and so I'll bundle my print orders together, and then every couple of weeks I'll drive down to the lab, pick up my print orders. But that's still time out of my day that I have to get in the car, drive to the lab, pick these prints up, you know, come back home. Then you're packaging the prints up and sending them off. So you kind of broke it all down into all, this, all the steps. Mm-hmm. And you figured about 35, 45 minutes of labor goes into producing that 8 by 10 mm-hmm. right? So that's that labor piece that I think gets lost with a lot of photographers is they don't, is they don't factor that in. They simply look at, oh, okay, this cost me $4 from the lab. I'm going to mark it up 
two or three times, okay, my price for an 8x10 is $15. But they're actually, if they sat down and figured out how much time they're spending, they'd realize that they're actually losing money on that. Now, if they were paying another person to do all that work, you guarantee they would factor that into the into the cost. But a lot of us don't do that because we just think, you know, oh, it's our time. And, you know, as long as there's money in the bank account, I'm making money, but that's not necessarily <laughs> the case, right? So how do you how do you factor that labor in and how do you calculate what your labor cost is, even if you're paying yourself? Yeah, so it's, it's actually really simple because if you look at basically whether it's you, whether it's an employee, I mean, the way I like to teach it is actually say, take yourself out of the equation and just pretend for a minute that you are an employee of your own company. So what are you paying yourself as an employee? Let's say, and I always use the example of $60,000 as your annual wage because it's a really easy calculation to make. But basically, okay. if you say that your time in, in throughout the year is worth $60,000, then you need to now extrapolate that down to what's your time worth per minute based on 52 working weeks and 40 hours a week. And then you can break that down, and, and roughly that translates to, I think, somewhere in like the 50-cent range type of thing. Um, and that's why I use that number because it's really easy to calculate. But basically, you take whatever it is you want to make as a salary – Divide it by 50, divide it by 40, and then divide that by 60 minutes per hour, and that gives you what your time is worth per minute. And so then whatever you end up calculating to be how much something takes of your time, whether it's a product, a service, anything. I mean, you could use this calculation for albums. You could use it for a wedding coverage, a portrait session, an 8x10 print. You basically multiply what that per minute wage is for yourself by how long it takes you to actually do it. So then you add that with whatever it costs you physically from your lab, whatever your packaging costs, whatever the shipping costs, add that together, and that's actually what that product costs you. And then from there, you have to mark that up in order to leave room to pay for all your other expenses. Okay. So what's a, what's a good markup? What's, a, what's an average markup? Would you say anywhere, depending on your situation? I mean, there's so many, you know, uh, I always go by PPA's benchmark survey because they sort of survey the entire United States and they, they get some good benchmarks in terms of what successful photographers do. Um, they're, they're recommending anywhere from 2.5 to 3 as a markup. Um, based on you still considering your wage and your salary and your time into the product of the or the cost of the product, so take whatever it is it ends up costing you and multiply that by two point five to three. That will leave room for your overhead. It will leave room for everything else that you have to pay. It will leave room for profit in your business, and that way you're actually able to run a sustainable business. Um, so whatever that ends up costing you, let's say that it ends up costing you. You know, $25 by the time you add in the labor and the material, multiply that by two and a half to three times, and that gives you what you should be charging for that product. Okay. So you had mentioned earlier that there's the sort of there's a there's a perceived value. There's also there's the you have to factor in what your competition is is charging. Robert mentioned that, you know, a lot of people perceive, you know, maybe because of the wedding, some of the weddings he shot that, you know, everything he's gonna shoot is, you know, starting at thirty five thousand dollars. But sometimes there's also that market forces that are mm-hmm. in play, right? That determine, you know, what can you charge before people start thinking that that's out of line with what the market is charging. So what if you're in, and a lot of, I think a lot of photographers struggle with this, particularly now, I think when the economy takes a little bit of a downturn, people you know, lose jobs, they look for other ways to supplement their income and they see, they think photography maybe is an easy way to get in and do that. So they come in and they start to undercut the market a lot. And you see a lot of, you know, people going in the market and, and probably undercharging, you know, for their services. How do you, 
I guess, deal with those market pressures and, and still price your product so that you're able, let's say you determine that you need to be charging $50 for an 8x10 to run a sustainable business, but every other person on the block is selling an 8x10 for $10. How, how do you deal with that situation? So I think, first of all, it's important to, I mean, you have to be aware of what your market is like, you know, I mean, it, it would be silly for me and, and I, there's always exceptions. And that's the thing that I, you know, have really have to get across is that there will be exceptions and you will have, you know, that one photographer in town that's like ridiculously higher price than everybody else. And they have a way of making it work, but you really have to be careful in a number of ways. One, you want to be aware of what your market will bear because like in your example, if everyone in your town is charging $500 for a wedding, it's going to be hard for you to come in and say, my price is start at $5,000. Again, there's going to be the exceptions and it can be done and it is done, but that's going to be really, really hard. So a number of things. Number one, I don't think that it's going to be the case that the average in your area is like, you know, below the poverty line because otherwise those photographers wouldn't still be doing it for a living. Um, so, you know, the, the market has a way of self-correcting itself. And I'd say that the average is is probably going to be at least uh, it'll allow you to make a living. So, so, you know, you have to be aware of that, but I sort of like to cut it off there and say, don't go and like, look at your competition and just copy it because what your competition does, how they present things, how they sell, what their expenses are, what their overhead is, all those kinds of things. You don't know that that's an unknown for you. So you can't just go and charge what they're charging because that's what they charge without knowing what their situation is. And so that's why I like to really encourage photographers to consider what makes sense for you and your situation with your business, with what you want to make as a salary, with whatever your overhead is in your business. So, you know, be aware of the competition, but don't, don't go as far as to copy it or to be overly obsessive with it. Just kind of have it as like a guideline to say, I can't be too ridiculously higher or lower than that, because that at least gives you a good sort of like pulse of where the industry <laughs> is locally. Yeah. So one of the one of the ways is uh, you know if you want to be able to make a more profit is if you can find ways to reduce your expenses on on items right so for example maybe finding a different lab that can give you a better rate or perhaps finding a different source for your packaging that can bring your costs down on your packaging but that labor component's a big piece I want to ask both of you guys particularly you know we talked about eight by ten prints because it's an easy example to kind of it's a concrete example we can kind of go through, but if we were to bring this, say, to an, to an album, which is a lot more involved, there's a you know a lot more time involved. Have you guys, when you were starting out and figuring out your pricing on your album, I assume both of you guys do did like kind of design your own albums and do that album album work yourselves. Yeah. Have you set both sat down and actually like with a timer and figured out how long it takes you to do <clears throat> an album? Yep. Robert, how about you? Have you do you sit like have you kind of? Well, I outsource a lot of my stuff now. Um, you know, but I, that means that I've spent some time finding the right person um, that I like their designs and trust and that I've worked with, et cetera. And so I have a particular, like, I know, you know, including design and printing and everything, like what it costs me to produce a book. Um, I have to do a little bit of the go between between the client and the designer. Uh, and I think we mentioned this in the other episode, and I'd like to get that part off my plate as well. Um, but um, other than that, like minor upkeep and emails back and forth to the client, it's all done. So um, I price my albums. Um, again, this is a whole different topic, but how everybody kind of prices things. Now, I do it per image. 
not per page, mm-hmm. not per. So um, my basic retail price on a book is $25 per image. It's easy for the client to figure out. It's easy for me to figure out. It's easy to them to figure out if they want to add more to it. So I, I'm very forward with that uh, upfront about it. I say, you know, like, and I'll discount. So, so say they get a hundred image album, you know, so that's $2,500. A lot of times I'll sell that as like 2000 as part of the package, or that's kind of how it's discounted. If you look at the package that includes a hundred image album. And then I say, you know, if you want to add images to your book afterwards, it's $25 each. So you can decide what you want to, you know, yours might be $15 each, yours might be $18 each, but the client can sit there and there's no surprise to them afterwards um, of what it's going to cost them. They know up front, you know, more they add to the book. And I've had clients go crazy and, you know, like they have put 300 images in their book. You know, that's a lot of, and, and then I, I'll say, look, if you really want that many pictures, you know, here, the retail cost on this is this much. I'll, I'll give you a little bit of a discount because I do make a fair profit on that. And they actually really appreciate that. You know, like I'll bring it down because I know I'm making a great profit on that. You know, so, you know, I did, I just did an order for, um, you know, not a celebrity, but one of my wealthy clients who I know can afford it. And they picked 900 images in their book. And the book was, it was a multiple day. You know, I shot all the weekends and I wrote the person and I said, you know, if I charge you for this album, it's going to be $12,000 for the first book. And she wanted multiple copies. And I said, I'm not going to do that. I know you can afford it. And I know, but I said, I still, you know, I'm going to charge you X and I'm going to still make a reasonable profit. And and she was appreciative of that, even though knowing, and I got 14 book order out of it. So, you know, I knew I was going to make money. And then, you know, my album company, Couture Books, you know, gives you like, I think it's 50% off all your additional copies. So I did really well on that order. Um, so you would just kind of have to like think of it, you know, that way. But I do it per image because, and then I'll, and I'll stop and I'll let, you know, we need to hear from you too, Bruce. But um, when I started in this industry, when I was doing film, it was much different. You know, we had shot lists and we had to go out and do this shot, this shot, this shot, because the person that sat down with them afterwards would go through each proof and say, oh, well, you need this one and this one, because the sales was done at the table, you know, and like, you know, like a car sales, like adding it on. And hopefully by the time, you know, that it was done, you made like a two or $3,000 album and built it. But a lot of times what would happen is, and I did this as I worked for studios, I'd sit with my clients for two, three, four hours and building the album. And then I get done and they had a credit because that's a lot of how people did it back then. You have a, you know, whatever, a thousand dollar album credit, 24 minutes of the package. But I'm like, you know, you're $3,000 over your credit and people would look at you and go, I can't afford that. And you just spent three or four hours with them. <laughs> and now we'd have to tear the book apart. And start over or pull things out. And then that was another two hours. And it was just like you'd want to pull your hair out. Um, so you kind of just have to decide what works best for you. And I know some people, again, as far as albums do per page, and they give people, oh, you can, you know, maybe, maybe they limit it. Like you, you can have, you know, 100 pages in your book, but you, you know, that you can only put four page, four images per page maximum. You know, everybody does it a little bit different. So they kind of have to what? do what works for them mm-hmm. but for me it just the per image worked for me because as i went away from the credit thing i was like well this makes the most sense you know most wedding albums that leave my studio are i would say 120 to 25 to 200 images typically on average you know 
So, you know, it's nice. I made, you know, I usually get an album, a couple parent albums. In today's world with digital, you know, there's clone books or duplicate books. So you can, you know, sell the parents duplicate books if you want. I try to just keep my workflow as simple as possible. I mean, ideally, if I do one album order and I take it and I design one book and then they order three because they want one for each parent, that's the best scenario. So with with that, then, is it's, I, I assume you have like a predetermined that's a fixed size in terms of what the album dimensions are. And do you give them any choices on that? Or is it here's, you know, it's a it's a 12 by 12 and it's $25 an image. That's that's it. Pretty much, it's pretty much fit. I did have a time where I mean, there was a time, you know, as digital kind of came along, and there was all these album companies springing up, and I was like, ooh, that one, ooh, that one, ooh, that one. And I had six or seven books in my studio because I wanted people to um, have like, you know, I didn't want to lose an inquiry because I didn't have the book that they wanted, so I had all sorts of solutions. But I pretty much honed it back to one book. You know, I use Couture books. Um, and they get a 10 by 13 album for the bride and groom, uh, you know, hundred images typically, um, is like where most people will start as far as a package goes. And then, um, parent albums, generally, if I do clone albums, they have the option. Do you want the same size or do you want eight by 10 versions? And in the same design, you know, the album company will just make me a smaller version of it. Okay. Brian, what do you what do you think in terms of? I mean, we could probably do a whole thing just separately on albums <laughs> themselves. But yeah. in terms of choice, I think this is a good segue into talking about like choice and when you're building when you're building your packages. Mm-hmm. What do you? What's the best strategy in terms of giving your clients? Because you want to give them some choice. You don't you know you don't want to just give them one. You know, just Heinz ketchup, and that's all they get to choose from. But what if there's like, like Robert said, there's you know thirty different ketchups on the shelf. Yeah, can it be a case where you see there's just too much, and you walk away from the ketchup aisle because it's like ah, I can't make a decision. Yeah, totally. What's the happy medium? There? So, um, before I get there, let me let me just ask Robert a question actually, because I think this is going to be, I think it'll really help the, the photographer. So, Robert, you outsource um, your design and all that, right? Correct. Um, so. What if your designer basically just told you, like when you were getting things set up, um, yeah, so Robert, I'll do your designs and the cost of the album that I designed for you will be anywhere from $100 to $2,000. Yeah, you'd be like, like, you'd, you'd be uh, like uh, no. <laughs> like, like, and I guess right. my point in saying that is that you know what your cost of an album within reason is going to be, right? Either per image, right. per spare, whatever it is. Right. Like, you know that going into it. And I think right. that's, the, that's the nice thing about outsourcing it. Like you would never walk in to buy a car and be like, yeah, I mean, just, I just want to have that car and whatever the price is, is, is like you going with a budget. Like, you know what you're going to spend. Right. 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 And I think and that, I, sorry. No, I was just going to say, I think probably what you're getting out too, just made me think like from a photographer to put yourself in that point about your client in their head, they probably have a dollar amount that they're comfortable spending. Right. You know, like, all right, well, I know this album's going to cost me more than my credit or whatever, right. but I'm, I'll spend $1,500 on an album. And, you know, so it, I'm just saying putting that same mindset yeah. and pretending you're the client really helps. Too. Yeah. So, so in my mind, it works that way for the client. But I also think that photographers need to have that same kind of distinction for themselves. Like if you don't know, like, and let's say you're not outsourcing your album design. And the reason I said it that way is because it's nice that you outsource it because it gives us a good concrete example here for those photographers that don't outsource it and do it themselves. Like me, for example, I do my own album design. If you don't know what that album design is taking in terms of time, therefore you don't know what that cost is. Therefore, if you're just kind of like, 
shooting into the wind and you're kind of like, yeah, the album could cost me anywhere from a hundred to $2,000. That's not really a good model to go with. And so that's why Bruce, when you had asked earlier, do we actually track what goes into the albums? Yes. I think it's really important for us to be able to know what goes into an album in terms of time, because if you don't, otherwise you're paying your designer, which is really you, any kind of price that it ends up costing. So that's just a quick aside. Um, and actually, Bruce, if, if you want to, I actually, so that article I wrote about the 8x10 and how to price it, I have the exact same kind of article, but how to price an album. So we can link to that if anyone's interested in knowing Can the I make a quick comment on outsourcing? Yeah. Um, so you also have to think about outsourcing that way as well. Yeah. In that, no matter, depending on where you are, if you're like, oh, well, Robert says outsource and you go to ABC outsourcing company that does your design and they're like, we'll design a book for you for $700. And the, you know, okay, what does it take to design an album? Like two, three hours if you're using Photoshop or, you know, InDesign. But there's programs now that we've talked about them on the show. You can design an album in 20 minutes, mm-hmm. you know, for a very simple design. But you find this company that says, oh, we'll do it for $700. And you're like, Robert says outsource. Great. But think about like, what if you paid someone $15 an hour and they mm-hmm. sat in your studio and it only cost you $200 to get them to design a book? You have yep. to think of it that way too. So you have to do what's best for you. Yeah. Don't just outsource to outsource. And it's the same thing with image editing. Yeah. Um, there's a lot of companies out there that do that, but I've thought the same thing. I'm like, but I could sit someone in my studio and pay them $15 an hour to do Lightroom and it's still cheaper than what that company wants to edit my jobs. Right. So, and and I, I think it's actually interesting because um, exactly what you said is spot on. And then also the reverse of that is spot on. Like I, I know in my, in my talkings with photographers, it's usually actually the case where photographers take too much time to design an album. So I'll talk with an, a photographer and they're like, Oh yeah, it takes me about 10 hours to design an album. And it's like, if you do these calculations and realize how much that time actually costs you, you'd be much better off outsourcing it. So it just depends on where right. you're at or right. how efficient you are or what software you use and those kinds of things. Um, but to get back to Bruce's question about, I know I, I sidetracked this, with, uh, with the whole Heinz thing. So it's actually really interesting because um, I actually do only offer one bottle of Heinz. Um, I actually made that change about two and a half, three years ago, where I used to do the model where it was like base album, plus, 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 all these upgrades. And the reason that I didn't like doing it is a couple. Number one, I felt like I was always having to sell my client. And I like to get the selling done up front, do it at the meet and greet, do it at the consultation, get them on board with whatever it is they want to get, and then just be able to have a good, pure relationship free of selling therefore after. So I didn't like doing that. I also didn't like the the pressure that it put on them after the wedding. There were so many revisions back and forth, back and forth, because they're always trying to get it down as much as they can. So it ended up actually taking more time because I had to keep doing more and more revisions. And the third piece of it is that no matter how much money they're okay spending on an album, they were still trying to get the best deal. They were still trying to get the, the most number of images down. And therefore, in my opinion, creatively, it compromised the quality of the album. I wasn't able to really design this beautiful full story because they were like, yeah, the reception, I don't need pictures of that. Let's cut that out. So it's like, or they're saying, oh, well, this page doesn't have enough images. Let's, let's combine these two pages. And so it just didn't end up having a good full story in my opinion. So I switched about three years ago to what I call my unlimited album, where I basically said, I want to design an album for you and I design it without your input up front. Um, and I want to design it the way that I would design it. And there's no limits on it. There's no limits on the size. There's no limits on the number of pages. There's no limits on the cover that you choose. And therefore you're picking and choosing and designing an album that's right for you. And that not that fits your budget. 
And so I found creatively, I, I get much better albums for my clients. Um, for them, it's a much better referral source and talking point, and they get to enjoy a much more beautiful album. And it takes me less time because I basically design it up front, send it to them. They're like, love it, let's do it. And then that's it. We, we print it. So it, it for me, it ends up making a lot more sense, but I had to price that at what the average ends up being anyway. So my, my base price for my albums now is much higher in, in terms of uh, – the competition in the area because everybody else in the area does the base album. So it ends up looking a lot cheaper than what I can offer. So that's the, the change that I did. So as much as I do kind of have just one bottle of Heinz, Bruce, um, I still do have the options where it's like, you know, what kind of leather would you want? Would you want to have a photo cover, that kind of thing. But other than that, I always do 10 by 15 horizontal albums and I always have the same kind of pages and the number of pages ends up being whatever we end up designing for them. So does that make your costs a little bit unpredictable, or do you find it kind of averages? Like if you give it, it sort of out. like a buffet, people can only eat so much that nobody's yeah. going to you know gorge. You know, you might lose on a couple of clients, but most come out. And do you find that well? That's that's out? the thing is like when you average um, the whole idea of an average is that you're going to have lower and you're going to have higher. So it does end up averaging out, and I do kind of revisit that every year to make sure I'm still spot on. But but the thing is, is because. They're not making decisions based on price. When I design that first album for them, I know what I need to be sticking in. Like I know that I should be around 25 spreads. Surprise, I actually designed that first design with 25 spreads. And because they don't feel like they're missing anything, they're basically like, looks good to me. Let's go ahead and do it. And because I always go with the 10 by 15, that price is fixed. The only sort of variable is whether they go with a photo cover or not. The photo cover costs me about $75 more. So I actually include that price in the default album. So if they don't go with a photo cover, it actually costs me a little bit less than what I'm expecting. I was just going to say that. Or you can figure out what the what the maximum of someone yeah. pimped their book out. Yep. And they put, you know, like Couture, for instance, you can have up to 300 pages in that book. So I just price it based on knowing, like, if someone put 300 pages in it mm-hmm. and I had to pay the maximum yep. my fee would cost to Couture, if they get less, then it's even more of a bonus for me. Mm-hmm. Um, instead of that other feeling like, oh, my gosh, they ordered more and it's costing me more <laughs> and blah, 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 you know. Yep. And one other quick, I know we kind of went off on an album album tangent, but... Um, one other quick, I think, tip for photographers. If you don't sell albums, think about this. I'm going to give you a couple couple things to think about. Um, you know, I mentioned I'm a big advocate of it. Um, do what I talked about earlier. In your, in your base package, make the, you know, include, you know, whatever you want in it. Don't tell them that they get an album in it. And maybe make it a small book, a 40 image, a 50 image, a 30 image. And then, Make a book for them and get it to them within a few months of the wedding. You design it. You pick the images. Basically, you are designing a portfolio for yourself of all your favorite images that you want them. So now you get the bonus of the wow factor of they're like, oh, my gosh, look at this amazing gift that he gave me. And now they're out talking about it and they have an album within hopefully two to three months from their wedding, which is those of you who sell albums know it takes people forever to pick their images if you do it that way and you allow them to pick their images. So let them do that. Like see what that does. Try it for a year and see what that does for your business. Uh, See how the referrals come in. See or uh, on along the same lines, include it in your base package, you know, Mm -hmm. and say you get a 50 image album with this. Um, but 
and, and lay the parameters. So in your basic package, you get a 50 image album. You can just put it wherever you want. But you say, but the studio designs it. You have no input, but you do get an album. And then in the next package, it has, you know, the 100 image album, but then they can have input. So maybe it pushes them up if they're, you know, if they're control, they want to control it, maybe push them up to that next package. Or again, you figure out your cost, you figure out a fair profit. Maybe you're making 500 bucks on that book after your expenses and you just add it to your, you know, your basic package. Um, and then you design it and you do it. And like you said, you know, you can just bust that thing out and get it done and you don't have to deal with all the changes in the back and forth because I, I know Brian knows this, that that's the biggest aggravation with albums is dealing with your clients mm-hmm. and the changes in the back and forth. So Whatever you can do to eliminate that, but, you know, exceed their expectations, I think, you know, will definitely, definitely, you'll see a difference in your referrals and your business. Awesome. Some good advice. One last thing I wanted to to talk about in pricing. Again, we could probably have multiple shows talking just about pricing. (laughs) But, um, you know, so I I think, you know, we've given some good advice as far as, like, figuring out, like, where are you at in terms of your costs and, and figuring out your labor charges and things so you can develop you know, what your pricing is on your physical products, but also on your services. So let's talk a little bit about um, the actual wedding packages. And I want to ask both of you guys your thoughts on dealing with, should you put pricing on your website? And how do you respond to the inquiry that starts with price? Because I think a lot of us nowadays, the conversation is starting via email. You know, we get an email inquiry. And if, you know, I, I don't know if you guys experience this. I'm sure you do. But a lot of the first questions is before they even ask if you're available, the first thing they're asking is how much? They don't well, even I want to take this conversation one step further and throw it out to the listeners because this is actually, I thought we could almost do a whole show on this. Um, so we'll start here. And, um, you know, we can discuss how we do it. Um, but I don't have an exact formula or exact something, and it's frustrating to me as well, and especially because I charge more. Um, but I want the listeners to write into us and tell us, like, some of the techniques that they use that's worked well for them to, you know, when they get that inquiry, like, yeah, I'm checking out your date for August. How much do you charge? Will you send me a price list? You know, like, we lose that personal touch again, and we've talked about this in the show. But, like, what are some of the tricks that you've done to engage your 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 potential customer to get you to call to get them to call you or for you to call them and to open up that conversation because we know the next trick is to turn that email into a phone conversation because if you turn it into a phone conversation then they get a sense of your person or of course excuse me or of course getting them into your studio or meeting with them wherever you meet with them so to answer that question i don't have an exact um formula. I just try to engage them. I try to ask them questions where they have to write me back. If they didn't put it in my contact form, you know, how did you find me? And, um, you know, I'd love to hear more about your wedding and, you know, like something, whatever pertaining to what their email says, if it's about their location or where they're getting married so that they have to write me back and they have to answer a question. Um, you know, sometimes they say, I would love to talk to you more about this. You know, when's a good time for us to talk and not, answer the price question um you know or say sometimes it varies based on i I need to hear more from you about your wedding and you know etc but so that's what i try to do and you know there are some where it's just kind of cold and i've like answered and i say well my packages start at you know and i give them that range and and that's fine too because it kind of qualifies and the same thing with the web like i don't put my prices on the web um but i think sometimes depending on you know what you charge it might be helpful to say yeah our packages start at 
a certain amount just to, you know, you're going to qualify or unqualify. Where, but we all know that, you know, even if your packages start at five grand, you know, somebody who said that's their budget might be a Ford 10. You know, it's just, again, I think the idea is to either get them in your studio or get them on the phone. Mm-hmm. I think a lot of people get scared by that, you know, the initial inquiry that, oh, they're, they're asking about price, they're going to be a cheap client or whatever. But I think a lot of people, that's, they don't know what else to ask, mm-hmm. right? So price is the easy thing. When you're shopping for anything, be it photography or a car or whatever it is, right? You, I think when you go in, you're looking for, you don't know what to ask. And if you're not educated on that particular thing that you're trying to buy, the first thing you're going to ask is, how much is it? Because you don't know the right questions to ask. So I like your advice of you, you want to try to find a way to engage them, sort of get them off the price question, start talking about their, their wedding and their day and their, their, and, and they, I, and I find that strategy works really, really well. Um, because then it gets them talking about their day. It gets them, you know, it, it builds that trust level with you. And then price is just kind of the, Oh yeah, we know we have to pay for it. Everybody realizes they're going to have to pay for it. Um, but I think they just don't know where to start the conversation. So price is the easiest thing, but it scares a lot of photographers off because they immediately jump to the assumption that, oh, this person is just price shopping, which isn't always, you know, it's probably less often the case than it is. I mean, there are the ones that are just price shopping and you can kind of tell those ones that are just price shopping. I think a lot of times, Brian, what are your thoughts on putting the pricing on your website? First off for, you know, sort of like Robert said, kind of pre-qualifying and then how do you get that conversation away from the price discussion. <laughs> okay, so let me warn the listener that this is going to go <laughs> on a little bit longer than we had hoped, but that's okay. <laughs> I'll try and keep this brief. I've actually given entire programs on this very topic. Yeah, um, I'm obviously, sure I'm, I'm like, I, and I don't think, yeah. I, I, I won't go in depth. Let, let, me, let me quickly, I'm going to answer the question in an indirect way. Um, first of all, if you wanted to compete on price, um, what would that look like, like for a photographer? Let's just kind of assume that you do want to compete on price. Um, there's sort of probably four things that you would you, you'd be doing. Um, number one, you would talk about price because it's what makes you different. Um, you would promote and talk about discounts because, again, it's that's your selling point. Um, you would give away the pricing right up front because it's what you want people to see because you're differentiating yourself through price. And you would make the whole thing just a straight, boring, flat, cold transaction because it's all about getting them in, getting the money, making it cheap, and getting out. So if you wanted to compete on price, that's what you'd do. If you don't want to compete on price, do the opposite of all of those. And that's a way to guarantee that you won't be competing on price. Um, so if you just look at those very things, don't talk about price, don't discount, don't give the pricing up front, and don't make it a transaction, make it deeper than that. Those are four ways that you cannot compete on price right away. As it relates to the website and uh, whether or not you put pricing on there or not, um, I, I sort of actually do kind of have a formula and I call, there's basically two, there's two sort of processes that every single client goes through and they go through whether you know it or not. Um, it's called the pre-inquiry process and then the inquiry process. The pre-inquiry process is when they're on their website, they're doing their own research, they're talking to their friends, and they're actually doing their own sort of uh, research about photography and you. And then the inquiry process is what happens once they actually get in touch with you. There's six things that should come before price, and if you put them before price, both in the pre-inquiry process on your website and on the inquiry process when you're actually communicating with your client, I guarantee that you will not be competing on price. Those six steps are number one, experience, number two, relationship, 
Number three, differentiation. Number four, proof. Number five, expectations. And number six, using the right language. If you do all those six things properly on your website and in person, I promise that you by the time the seventh one comes along, which is price, you will not be competing on price and you will have gotten over the whole pricing discussion. It's the idea of you need to, again, we talked about at the beginning, and this is a good way to, I guess, wrap it around, is uh, you have to build up what that value is to be much greater than what they're actually going to be spending on what they're getting for that value. And by doing those six things twice, uh, you, you build up that sort of value sandwich so that when it comes time to the price, they're kind of like, they're like, wow, you're actually, you're a good deal based on everything else that you've set the expectations, based on the value you've built up. You need to build up this giant value so that they're like, Oh, that's good. Like I was expecting you to be a lot more expensive than that. And when you can get there with a good price, you know you've done it right. So uh, in terms of pricing the website, again, more directly now, uh, I do think you should put it on there, but I think that it should be the very last thing that they see on the website. And you should very intentionally make it the last thing they see on your website because you have to do those other things before they get to price. If they, if they see price right away, if that's the first thing that they do, if you make it very obvious that here's my price right here, come here, come see it, then, then you're just going to be a number on a spreadsheet for them. So you have to do all those other things to build up that value before you can kind of disclose that price to them. But I do think it's important because you need to at least have some kind of expectation set. If you if your prices start at five thousand dollars, you don't want people contacting you that have a budget of fifteen hundred. Um, you at least want to have some kind of expectation so you don't waste their time and you don't waste your time. Awesome. All fantastic stuff. Again, I think we could probably do multiple shows talking <laughs> about pricing and, and whatnot. We didn't really get into talking today about you know how to build your packages and, and giving different options and things like that. That could be you know and psychology of pricing. I mean, we mm-hmm. could have multiple discussions about this stuff. Um, so, but I think we covered some really good points um, for the you know for the audience today. So, I think that's probably a good spot to kind of wrap up our discussion for today. And I just wanted to reiterate just, you know, again, I want the listeners to send us like their little, you know, whether it's something they write, their emails that they write back, you know, email us. Um, we'll give out the email, you know, towards the end of the show, which we're almost at. Yeah. Um, and send us your emails, send us, you know, what do you do? What do you do to engage that client? Because I think everybody, you know, what's what for some or not right for others. Mm-hmm. I'm interested in hearing it, but I know everyone out there is interested in hearing exactly like, you know, what do you do? How do you get them to call you back? How do you get them to get past the price? How do you get them, uh, you know, to engage your client and get a phone conversation or get them in your studio when you just get that, send me your prices or how much is your prices? Yeah, I'd love to build a show around that specific topic really and kind of dig yeah. into it a bit and some some strategies as to how to deal with that because I think a lot of us struggle with that, right? The, mm-hmm. the email inquiry comes in, you reply back and it's like crickets and you don't hear anything from them. I, you know, I've had it where, and I always do two things. I follow up with the email and then if they've left phone number, uh, then I'll I'll follow up with a phone call in a couple of days just to just to see just touch base. Did you get our information? Want to make sure you received our email? You know, and I've gotten I don't know. People are afraid of the phone these days. I think because I get voicemail more often than not, and I'll leave a voicemail and never hear from them. So you know, you you, you send the email, you phone them, and you don't hear from them. You wonder like you contacted me, and now <laughs> you know. I even had one a while ago that they left me. Uh, you know, they emailed. I called, left the left a voicemail, and like two seconds later, she phoned me because I saw a call display. And when I answered the phone, she hung up on me. <laughs> and I was like, "Well, like you phoned me, <laughs> like, and you're afraid to talk to me." So yeah, I think we could build a whole show just talking about good, effective strategies to like get back in touch with people and and get that initial conversation going. 
Can I share one quick tactic that I've found works really well? Um, yes, and it's something that, that maybe the listener, like they can implement in their email scripts right away. Um, I always suggest, especially after that first inquiry, like their email that you send back to them, um, a lot of photographers kind of treat that as like, you know, what I call like a verbal diarrhea where they kind of just like throw everything in that email. And then it's kind of like, there you go, leave it at that. And then they just kind of expect the client to get back to them. I think that's where the mistake is, is you have to either A, leave something to be desired, but B, you also have to kind of do a bit of a call to action. And I know this gets into like the psychology of selling and even on the web and stuff. But if you finish your first email with some kind of open-ended question, uh, people will um, intuitively want to reply to that just to get kind of answer that question. Because otherwise it kind of, it, it leaves the loop closed otherwise. Whereas if you ask that open-ended question, it leaves the loop open and they're going to want to get back to you to reply to that. So you could you could end the email with something really as simple as, you know, I, I'd, I'd love to have you guys over to the studio where we can get to know each other a little bit better. Uh, would this date work or would this date work? Like if you if you end it with like some kind of open-ended question like that, or I'd love to hear more about your wedding, tell me more about what you envisioned for your photography. Like if you if you end it with some kind of question, some kind of reason for them to reply to you, it would make them want to reply to you as opposed to just giving them everything and then saying, let me know if you have any more questions. Like that doesn't really leave any kind of conversation. So th that would be, I would say, like a pretty good tactic if, if photographers listening want to kind of increase that kind of conversion rate from the first email. Awesome. Excellent advice. Well, gentlemen, I think that brings us to the end of another episode. So, um, again, we want to thank their sponsors for their support. Remember, we want to hear from you guys. So, as Robert mentioned, we want you to send in your questions for the show. We want to hear your feedback. Um, be sure to comment on the blog post for this episode. We want to hear your thoughts and some of your strategies around, around pricing, around dealing with that initial inquiry, how to get off that price question. So you can either leave your comments on the blog post for this episode. Um, you can also email us, again, twipwed at thisweekinphoto.com. And, uh, guys, where can everybody keep up with your whereabouts and your, and what you're up to? Brian, where can we find you on the interwebs? Yes, I'm pretty much, um, at BCAP photo on everything. That's BCAP photo. Um, that's on Twitter. That's on Instagram. Uh, it's on Facebook is facebook.com slash BCAP photos. You can find me there. Uh, spreadingphotographer.com is where I do all my writing. So all these topics we talked about today, you can tell I'm a little bit passionate about the idea of pricing and the mechanics of business. And so we've got a ton of stuff over there. And if you know, you listening, if you're, if you struggle with pricing and you kind of hear these calculations and all these things that we talked about and you're like, kind of overwhelmed. Um, we've actually built free pricing calculators over on our website where you literally go there, put in all your numbers, put in all your expenses, put in what you want to make for a salary, and then press the calculate button. And we punch out saying, here's what you should charge based on your cost of goods for this particular product or service. So, and it's free. So if you want to go and check that out, you can find that at spreadingphotographer.com. Sweet. Nice. Excellent. Nice. Robert, how about you? Where can we find you? Uh, like Brian, it's pretty much my name, at Robert Evans on most things. So that's at Robert Evans at Twitter, at Robert Evans on Instagram. Website is robertevans.com. Um, what else? Facebook, I think, is Robert Evans Studios. Um, and I mentioned in the last show that I recently started a new Instagram account for my uh, Sony lovers out there. If you guys know that I shoot Sony, I'm a Sony artisan. It's uh, at sonyselfie.com. 
And uh, the idea there is take a picture with your Sony selfie with your Sony or holding your Sony or some sort of selfie version and throw it up there and we'll get it on the Instagram. Tell us why you love it. So that's how you find me. Awesome. Good stuff. And if you are looking for me, you can find me on the, on the Twitters and the Instagrams and other places as Bruce Clark. That's with a Clark with an E, uh, or over on our website at momentsindigital.com. Um, and of course, you can find us at thisweekinphoto.com. Just look for the Twip Weddings, and you can subscribe to the show there. Uh, you'll see the blog post for this episode with links to everything that we talked about today on the show, our picks of the week, and other uh, links to some of the, uh, the articles that Brian's got on his website about pricing. And that brings us to the close of another show. So thanks, thanks again for listening to Twip Weddings, raising the bar one wedding at a time.